Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My guests today are responsible for the long-running Guardian video series Anywhere But Westminster, which recently won the Orwell Prize for Journalism. Carrie Gracie, chair of the judges, said that the series rose to the Orwell Challenge by getting up and down the country, talking to ordinary people, listening so hard to their stories and putting those stories at the heart of our understanding of contemporary Britain. John Harris and John Domikos, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much. John Harris, you started out in music journalism, so you will be familiar with the how did the band get together question. My understanding of this of this series is that it sort of started as one thing but became something else. Can you just kind of give us the brief origin story? Well, John has this sort of slightly embarrassing sort of tale of how it started, which was that I think I quite fancied being a fairly orthodox political journalist and commentator at that time. We're talking here about sort of 2008, 2009. Mm. And they sent me to a party conferences, and to which I wore a suit. I remember that, which I wouldn't do now, I don't think. And they said, oh, we're going to do some videos of talking heads. Not the the pop group led by David Byrne. I mean, they've just my, my face, really, talking about what had gone on at conference that day. And somewhere in the Guardian archive, there's this utterly tedious sort of minute-long clip of me droning on about Gordon Brown and the trade union. <laughs> you know, I mean, this isn't what happened, but it's effectively what happened. I think he quietly said, this is a load of bollocks and we've got to do something different here. <laughs> and it began to evolve. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose what you do is not... I mean, Vox Pops would be doing it a disservice, but this idea of going out and just sort of seeing what people think, um, yeah. particularly in the last few years has had quite a bad reputation. You know, you, the, the sort of jokes about the classic leave voting pensioner in a sort of market square on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. How do you avoid that scenario? Is it about you know, where you go, who you choose, what you say to them? I'd say that in terms of the origin story, like John Harris came to this as an outsider to politics in a way, writing as a kind of someone with a music background. I came to it as an outsider from as a video journalist but an outsider to TV news, I'd sort of tried and failed in TV news. And I sort of had this dislike of everything, you know, that it looked like and felt like as a medium. So the kind of coming together with that was was that TV political news coverage should look different on the internet. And whereas, yeah, TV news does do kind of what we call vox pops, very often it would be sort of very packaged, short section in, in their news that usually backs up or shows, you know, a certain point that they've already decided out in their news coverage. And the main news coverage would be people talking in suits outside Westminster. I guess how we tried to make our Vox Pop different are a couple of ways. One, we, we, we very often would lead our sort of explorations with them. We'd hit town and we'd have a few things set up. But the first thing we do is speak to people on the street and then kind of improvise from there. So it wasn't a kind of afterthought, you know, just fitting in some five second clips. The other thing I'd say is that we, we we talk to people about their lives. We don't say we don't. You, you very rarely go to someone and say, "Are you voting for Boris or Jeremy?" You know, it's, we usually start with questions about what it's like to live here mm. uh, and how's your place changed recently. And, and almost the very last question is, "Oh, by the way, who are you going to vote for?" And then it, it's kind of a much richer conversation and, and, and understanding. When you go up and say, uh, "I'm for the Guardian," can we talk to you? Do you find that people are genuinely, generally willing to talk? Do you get a lot of knockbacks and people who are either too so busy are, or don't like the Guardian? You know, there are various sort of axes of variation in play here, right? So there are some parts of Britain that are better than others. You know, South if, you, Wales. if you've only got an hour, you have to go to South Wales, basically. <laughs> right, Mancunians are really good. London, forget it. Which is not the fault of London; is everyone's in a hurry. 
Mm. People are always in a hurry. Maybe I haven't done, I haven't tried this in London since the start of the pandemic, and maybe sort of life has calmed down a bit. But that's quite that can be quite difficult, you know. I wouldn't advise anyone. There is, I mean, I'm going to have to keep these places nameless, really. But there are a few places we've we've sort of tried to do it and given up. But um, there's a bit of that. And the guard, no, the guard. You'd be surprised. I mean, I've been called a communist and stuff for saying I'm from the Guardian. We had a little bit of that, but it, it. But no, the Guardian doesn't seem to put people off. The main thing is we haven't got a camera the size of a house. A Nick Broomfield type sound person. We haven't got suits on. We have a, I mean, you know, we have a set of sort of stock lines like, oh, we're dying here, or I know this is a really weird thing to ask you, or we are now living in a very strange way, please help. And once, you know, if people start to laugh, mm, that's mm. the process, really. And as John said, you know, if you, sometimes I watch broadcasters, and it is like they find some poor person and throw him against the wall and go, are you, what do you think of Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not what we do. It's like, it's like you'd ask anyone if you hit town, what's it like here? What do you do? You know. Well, what's the, I mean, if there is one, what's the sort of quintessential anywhere but Westminster town? Uh, you know, a place that you sort of, would you've been back to a lot to sort of, to take the temperature of the country at, at large. That's a good question. I think, we have to say, I think we have to say Walsall for this one. Walsall. We have a joke, it's called Better Call Walsall. <laughs> what is it about Walsall? It's a microcosm of England, really. There are two halves of Walsall. North Walsall, um, it's not very diverse and quite Brexit-y, to be, to be sort of crass about it. A lot of sort of post-war ha- social housing developments there, blurring out into Brown Hill. South Walsall is much more diverse and sort of quintessentially urban, for want of a better word. It's a, it's a large town that's almost a city. It has one Labour MP and one Conservative MP. It voted for Brexit, I think, getting on for about 60%, so it's not quite the in that mm. regard. And it's in the middle of the country. It also ticks the box that, you know, people in, in that part of the country are very good talkers and are very up for yeah. chatting. Right, right. Also, yeah, of time also. We have a favourite hotel there and we like the Nando's, which is and all that. So sort of consider <laughs> that uh, it's not the only place, but I think that's that's what if we if push comes to shove, we that's the one we feel most bummed about. But there's there's lots of other places. Merthyr Tidville, Plymouth. Even affluent suburban places we've done films we really like. I really love Guildford since we went there. Guildford was really good to us and showed us a lot. It's not just sort of quintessential post-industrial brexit places at all. Well, in, in some of the videos, um, you actually seem quite sort of, quite visibly like either moved or surprised, which is, again, I suppose, something that's different from your traditional reporter in a, in a suit. What sort of encounters do you find you know, the uh, sort of candidly sort of discombobulating that, you, that it really does sort of, you really have to stop and sort of reflect on on what you've just heard. I suppose that works two ways. So one way is, and the viewer gets this sense, hopefully when they watch the film sometimes, is if someone suggests some outward, quite sort of simple political stereotype, and then you sort of get behind it into something much richer and sometimes almost sort of contradictory to the point that it goes against people's expectations. There was a fellow we met in Wigan in one of the films, he, 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 and he was talking about why he voted for Brexit, and he said something, this was after the referendum, and he said something like, well, why hasn't it happened already, which we got so used to hearing people say on TV. And then quite quickly he told us he was an Amazon driver, and he was talking about inequality and how it increases crime rates, and it was a, a very interesting mixture of what you'd consider 
some right-wing politics and quite a lot of sort of left-of-centre politics at the same time. When that happens and you realise how sort of rich and textured and interesting people's politics and their view of the world are, that's really great. And then the other thing is just simple sort of human stories, you know, like um, I've actually cried on camera once when we met a load of mums in Kensington, which is a very deprived part of Liverpool, whose Shore Start Centre was about to close. And they just talked in a very vivid way about what that would mean for the lives of them and their kids, and I lost it on camera. It's those, broadly speaking, those two things. Well, I was, it's interesting what you say about the Amazon driver, because when you talk to people um, sort of complaining about neglected communities, I can't easily guess their politics. Sometimes their, their politics don't even come up. They all want more opportunities. They want to feel that the state cares about them. They, they, they feel that things are broken. There is so much talk now of these sort of post-Brexit culture war divides. Do you see a lot of evidence of that or do you find that people are mostly concerned with jobs housing facilities the state of the high street and and so on oh it's a really hard one to to answer isn't it because you don't want to be seen to be minimizing the nastier sides that exist to the to the culture war but my my instinct has always been to to say that we are actually more you know less divided than you than the commentary reflects i mean i'd say one thing which is that if you compare the way certain debates happen on social media where it's stripped of all the kind of non-verbal communication and human sort of contact and face-to-face element that builds empathy compare that to many of our encounters even with people whose politics i might disagree with usually the conversation is much more human and and respectful and, and there's some kind of connection there you know and that that for me comes back to again why Vox Pops or, you know, street encounters, as you want to call them, are kind of important is because they're different to that shouty noise that you get on on, on Facebook yeah. and Twitter. And stuff. Totally, totally. So I think that the, the idea that we're all at sixes and sevens and involved in this very aggressive so-called culture wars itself is a product of the way that we talk to strangers. I mean, you know, we all talk to, particularly if, if you're on Twitter, which I know you are, Dorian, and I am too, the way, you know, we talk to a lot more strangers than we ever did before, right? But we talk to them in this idiom, which is mental, you know. It's awful <laughs> very often. It just goes from naught to 60, right? And and the way that we talk to people isn't like that. It can't be, otherwise you wouldn't have decent conversations. And therefore what that highlights is the fact that the world isn't like, you know, Frank Luntz, that pollster recently has said this, isn't he? That the culture war is the number two thing dividing Britain. And that's not our experience, and it's not, it goes over and above, incidentally, this idea about and what ties people together as sort of very sort of staple, almost meat and potatoes things about boarded up shops and the state of the roads and all that stuff. You know, I, I also mean that in the sense of um, quite sort of high flown stuff in the sense that most people aren't horrible racists and they're not brimming with bigotry and they don't want to kick down and all the rest of it, you know. And society has progressed in various ways, certainly to where it was 30, 40 years ago. And you see evidence of all that of that all the time. So even if someone's more socially conservative than I am, they're not nearly as social, socially conservative as my grandparents' generation or, or large swathes of my parents' generation. And things are very, very complicated. And hopefully the, the films sort of flesh that out. And yes, most of the time I do sort of exit a shoot that I do with John, feeling sort of at least guardedly optimistic about the country, as strange as that may sound. It's also worth adding just a final point, which is that we, we've we've heard many, many common themes between people who vote very, very different ways. So people who, you know, take a lot of the same reasons 
about lack of control and lack of sort of security and, and sense of the future to vote for, you know, sort of Brexit or it could be Jeremy Corbyn or it could be sort of, you know, independence movements and stuff like that. So we've heard sort of common routes very often to ending up in very different yeah. places. Which makes me wonder that prior to Corbyn's election in 2015, Brexit referendum in 2016, were you better equipped to anticipate those upheavals because of the work that you'd been doing, that you sensed that sort of something something had to give, that there was something that was going to erupt in one form or another? After 2014, I mean, yeah, the thread started coming together very much. And we left Scotland, you know, we sort of covered the independence campaign quite a lot there. And when we came back to England, John, you had a, a sort of line that you said in one of the films, didn't you? About political reformation. Yeah. 2014 was a really sort of key year. No, I don't think anything happened that year. So, uh, apart from the, I mean, the Scottish, sorry, the Scottish referendum happened that year, a big thing happened that year. But in England, it's hard to tell because in my head there's been an election almost every year, right? But that wasn't the case. The, the only thing that year, I think there may have been a round of local elections, maybe European elections, I'm not sure. But the big thing was the Scottish referendum. But in England, that was a, a key year for UKIP sort of reaching the crest of a wave and everything that came with it. And I think that, I mean, it's hard to conceive of a time when the Labour Party wasn't in a terrible mess, isn't it? But uh, I think the Labour Party was in a terrible mess. <laughs> so I mean, there was this sense of sort of everything going in directions that a lot of people hadn't seen coming. And somehow, as John hinted at earlier, that, you know, the fact that Scottish independence got as much support as it did, although the political expression of disconnection and sort of dismay and resentment was different in Scotland's case, it did feel to some extent like it intersected with what was going on in England. And so going into 2015, which was an election year, the, the election Ed Miliband lost, we did have a sense of sort of all bets are off here. It's worth adding that we we rarely, you know, we hardly ever stand there and make predictions. We say this is going to happen in the referendum. I mean, that's a mugs game. On the few occasions that we've done it, we have a couple of times got things wrong, yeah, yeah. you know. It's, it's more about interpreting and kind of context and understanding. And because, I mean, so you do want to sort of listen and understand, but sometimes you're talking to people who are going to say something that is is factually wrong, self-contradictory, an outright conspiracy theory. Do you have a kind of a code or a way of dealing with people like like that? Where you, what kind of pushback do you give if someone's just giving you an, an outright conspiracy theory? How much are you allowed to go? Do you allow yourself to just go, well, no, that's not true? I think coming back and saying that, no, that's not true in that sense is is a bit kind of fruitless. You know, you end up with a sort of ding dong on camera. It's more about showing the respect of sort of, I don't know, debating the bits of it that are true, I guess, and acknowledging that some of what where they're coming from has truth to it. And again, I keep coming back to this idea of sort of understanding and con- context. If a conspiracy theory is voiced at the end of an interesting conversation where they've talked about the rest of the things that have happened to them in their lives, then you kind of understand it in, in context. Yeah, so there's a, there's a really good example of that where um, in a film we made in Walsall, actually, and Manchester before before Christmas just gone, where we're in Collyhurst in North Manchester, it was quite a deprived part of North Manchester where we spent quite a lot of time. I mean, these two guys who were sort of in their 20s, and I think they talk about their experience of work or the lack of it. I think they've worked in warehouses and so on. And then they come on to this idea that the pandemic is all got up in order to put the entirety of human existence online and that somehow vaccinations are to do with that and all that. And that's there, right, if you want to see it. 
And I think I, I sort of say, well, I, you know, I don't, I'm not of that opinion and, and so on. But the point is, it's like an extreme, somewhat sort of surreal, weird expression of what they're experiencing anyway, which is that the world does look mm. impersonal and odd and the entirety of their lives somewhat against their will have been put online and the only work going locally is working for internet e-commerce giants and all the rest of it so in that sense them saying that the pandemic's all got up to push the entire world on the internet it sort of makes sense even if you know what they're saying isn't true and you and you will dispute it you begin to understand why as many people as do believe that stuff right and then there's mm. more i mean there are and then there are more straightforward manifestations of it you know there's another bit of film i looked at recently of a someone of mixed race in peterborough saying they should chuck all the immigrants out and I say to him on camera, well, where did your dad come from? And he says, Jamaica. And I said, well, why, is it, why was it different for him? You, presumably, he didn't want him kicked out. So why is that different in your case? And it's not different as regards to the people you want throwing out, in quote mark. Whether you call that pushback or not, I don't know. But it, it happens. It's just that, as John says, I'm not, I'm not there to I'm very, I, I'm not there to monster people. And I'm also not there to make people you, that, who you've never heard of going about their daily business notorious and ruin their lives when they get put on the end of a Twitter mob. That's not really what we're there to do. So, yeah, you mentioned, obviously, that that, that was something when you were actually able to go out on the streets during COVID and, and, and the sort of gap between lockdowns. It's sort of weird in a way that you sort of won the Orwell Prize in a year where you often couldn't go and talk to people face to face. John Tomacus, what is the logistics of keeping it going remotely? I mean, I've, I've, I've seen you know, some of the ones that you, you've done. But just to explain to listeners, like, how do you create a satisfying anywhere but Westminster still showing people these towns, still talking to people when you're not allowed to leave your house? Yeah, it's a big challenge because as, as we've already said, the, 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 the pandemic made all of the things almost impossible that, that what anywhere Westminster was about, you know, getting to people's places, getting close to them, listening to them. After a couple of weeks of lockdown, John and I phoned each other and said, we've got to do something here. We sort of alighted on a few methods, you know, one of which was getting people to film stuff in their own lives with their phone. We really mobilised the kind of community that, that had built up around these films to reach out and get people covering their lives for us. You know, we had a guy who was shielding, a young guy actually, who was shielding and very vulnerable, doing a video diary of his daily life in his house and people from all sorts of backgrounds. In fact, we, in some ways, we had the most diverse cast of people we'd ever had through this kind of yeah. method. Um, we also did um, the funniest moment I thought was um, sort of virtual vop spots where we would wander down the street using Google Street View. I had John in his bedroom, <laughs> I was in mine, <laughs> and we sort of met together on Google Street View with you know video recording running in the background. And we'd wander down and we'd do exactly the same as what we did. We would do normally go, oh, look, you know, stuff's not looking great here, or let's go down there, and you know, we'd see some phone numbers on the side of a white van, and we phoned him up and vox popped him. There was a number, it was a Middlesbrough, there was a white van, it was a, a painter, a decorator or something, it had a, a mobile number on it. So I just phoned him and said, what's it like living in Middlesbrough and what do you think about Dominic Cummings? And he was very agreeable. And we spoke to the local florist and a guy who ran a coach company. So yeah, necessity was the sort of mother of invention there, that's what you had to do. <laughs> John Harris, you say in one of those episodes that there's no way back after COVID, you, things have to change. Was that a prediction or... A hope. It's a hope, probably. I mean, we, uh, there's a bit of polemic in the films sometimes. I don't know whether I feel that in the sense of sort of high politics and that the government is going to change tack or the Labour Party is going to start behaving in a slightly more satisfactory fashion. But I think um, I think as regards people and, a, and their perception of 
life and work and all of those things and the things that they apply value to or not and all that. I think quite profound things have changed. And I think eventually there'll be, that will have a political expression. But as we all know, you know, it's one of the features of British politics in particular that can take years. You know, I mean, the Wall Street crash happened in 1929 and you finally got a social democratic government in 1945. I mean, that's 16 years. We just don't know yet. But I am of the opinion that quite fundamental things have shifted in people's perception of themselves in the world. Definitely. Well, when I watch those videos, you know, I do think of certain things, perhaps, that, that politicians are saying, whether it's sort of Lisa Nandy's work with towns, the, the, the government's levelling up agenda, the much greater talk about sort of left behind communities uh, over the last five years. Do you think that politicians are more willing to respond to these problems that you've sort of been identifying in the videos than they were a few years ago? Or is it just rhetoric? Going back to the question before about what's changed, if anything, I Mm. think the feeling among people on the ground that the solutions don't necessarily come from above, from the top, and they're not going to sit around and wait for governments to come and solve. I think that's the probably the single biggest Mm. change, and I hope it's permanent. You know, all the mutual aid, which a lot of the stuff was, was going on already and we've been covering it, that has really changed a lot of people, how they feel about change and where it has to come from. Well, that's where the optimism, I think, can come from as a viewer, the number of sort of local schemes and projects and people doing a lot of very good work with very little money. Yeah, and it cuts across, but it cuts across a whole set of stories about strivers and skivers, for example. I mean, you know, just about every government, I mean, going back into the, in the days of the New Labour, almost encouraged people to think the worst of a lot of people who lived around them, right? Not the spirit Mm. of mutual aid and what happened in the wake of the pandemic. The spirit of that is the reverse. That's quite interesting. To answer the the question from a moment ago about politicians and levelling up and the town's agenda and all that stuff, that's a change. I cut my teeth, really, as a political journalist early on in a world in which what sort of defined the political weather because of our crazy electoral system was still these places that were sort like Milton Keynes Central and Warrington South and Basildon and all and there were nothing against those places but they they were largely places that were doing okay not necessarily doing great but the fact that they they dictated what the center ground so to speak was meant that a lot of problems bound up with poverty and deprivation and regional imbalance and deindustrialization didn't really get a look in right that has changed now whether that's cosmetic or, or substantial is the eternal question of politics i mean if you're talking about any subject at all but it's a shift started when Theresa May started talking about the just about managing and used the term working class without apology, which no one had heard in politics, Labour or Conservative, for years. So I think something has shifted. The question is clearly what politicians do about that. And at the moment, because of this so-called culture war thing, what slightly depresses me is not enough attention is given to these questions John mentioned about power and how it's distributed and the reality of life and so on. And it becomes just about playing to a set of values, in quote marks, which is manifest either in the government picking fights about museums or Keir Starmer standing in front of a Union Jack, as if that answers the question, and it doesn't. And I wanted to, 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 to finally ask you both how much this experience has changed your own politics, influenced your politics, maybe sort of priorities and, and ideas, if not presumably your fundamental values. Like, how has it changed your outlook? Massively. I mean, I... I can't even remember what it was like to be certain of stuff 
you know, I, I've become so uncertain, if you like. I'm certain of basic values, but so many times I've sort of changed my mind or, you know, the way the way in which I see things through doing this that, that I, I find it very hard to – I don't know. I'm not sure how I explain that properly. I, one of our p- catchphrases on the road is that things are complicated, and that's kind of how I feel about a lot now. I find myself trying to understand a lot more rather than judging although that's very hard in some cases and maybe maybe judgment is also required and, and john harris i wonder with you because obviously your column writing yeah. is deeply influenced by your reporting which is not the case with all political columnists and i wondered how it had affected your you know how would you describe its influence on your analysis so i think i now have an, a, a sort of opinion about political commentary and what it is or what it's become and what it ought to be, which is completely defined by what we've been doing. And we're not the only people who do it, right? There are other commentators who always ensure that to a lesser or greater extent, reporting is in what they do. I mean, our colleague at The Guardian, Aditya Chakraborty, is like that. Gary Young sort of pioneered this. It wasn't our invention, right? I think it's really important because the world is full of commentary. The world is full of punditry, you know. It's full of people who just who seem to just sit in a garret somewhere and just bash out what they think endlessly. But I think if you want to differentiate yourself from that and actually increase the world's stock of knowledge, then you have to report. You have to kind of be out there. And in the course of doing that, certainly what's happened to me is very, very similar, if not identical, to what's happened to John, really, which is... I still feel very certain about the fact that I think this country and the wider world is too unequal in all sorts of ways. And I still fervently believe in things like comprehensive education and the idea of a public realm as separate from the market and all of that stuff. But A, I'm much more aware of complexity and nuance and how difficult politics is to sort of read, let alone to sort of explore with a view to finding very cut and dried conclusions. That's often pretty hard because of what we do. And then the other thing is, I think I've just become understanding of other people's politics. I'm really interested in conservatism now, with a, with a small C and with a large C to some extent, in a way that I don't think I was 10 years ago. Although I've never voted conservative in my life, and I never will, I understand why people do. And I also understand that my politics is probably as full of irrationality and ancestor worship and all of these things which aren't necessarily about sitting down in a desiccated way, figuring out the pros and the cons. I think that applies just as much to my politics as it does to a lot of the people that I talk to. And so hopefully it fosters a sort of humility. And that isn't to say that ultimately, you know, if you want to t- any given election, I'll tell you who I think you should vote for. And there are, you know, there are strains of politics I don't like and some I actively hate. But hopefully in the midst of all that, I sort of understand a bit more and I'm, and I'm more humble and more prepared to see the point of the other side because that's what's lacking in the world isn't it to sound like band-aid or something (laughs) we need a bit more of that don't we i think we need a bit more of that feed the world let them know it's christmas time thanks for joining me john harris and john domicus and thanks to you for listening you can view the anywhere but westminster archive and read john harris's columns on the guardian website take care and see you next time The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.